to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of Dinner Party, Chef Amy Sins. And today, in the studio, virtually, I have a good friend of mine, Andy Chapman. And I am so excited to have him here because y'all, he and I have had a lot of fun with food over the years. And his whole business is changing and I'm just hoping that we can have a little bit of fun not just in the U.S. but internationally now. So Annie is with Feast Global. It was at one time Eat Y'all which is how I got to know him but I want to welcome Andy on the show. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here Amy. It's such a treat to uh, get to catch up with you and visit. Uh, You know it's, it's not every day we get to hang out in New Orleans virtually. Right. Hang out in New Orleans virtually. That's it. And where are you now? You're in Mississippi? So we're Ocean Springs, Mississippi. So not too far down the way. In fact, we got a meeting there tonight that Marianne's going to. So. And for my listeners out there, Andy's also my phone. Uh, well, I'm his phone a friend. Hey, Amy, I need a parking spot. And I'm trying to explain to him that it gets more and more complicated, especially downtown if you need a parking spot. Right, man? <laughs> Oh, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about kind of what you're doing now? I got to meet you when you were with Eat Y'all, and we we learned about U.S. dairy farming and oysters and all the things, but it seems like you've absolutely expanded and, and changed that mission. Yeah, we... um kind of jumping all the way back to the beginning we my wife and I had a marketing company and a consulting business and built a lot of websites and was kind of in the techie nerd world and one of the websites I built was just a fun one for me and I was tweeting about food in Jackson Mississippi where I lived at the time and uh, it just went crazy and people really kind of just latched on to this food blog way before Yelp and Eater and all that, they're talking about food. And then that led me to knowing over the course of years, hundreds of chefs and learning all sorts of things about food. We started doing events for chefs and we did a bunch of chef dinners and we did these things called chef camps, which you've joined us at. I've cooked it. Um, I think we actually met, you were cooking something at Orange Beach um, for the uh, War Fund Court dinner. Um, but or the whatever that wine festival was at the time. But you meet really cool people, but the common denominator of all chefs is they're only as good as the ingredients they can start with. And so it doesn't matter if you're a Michelin star chef or you're a home cook. If you have to start with a 12-day-old piece of fish, there's only so much good you can do with um, and everybody's looking for great ingredients. And on the flip side of that coin, there are farms throughout the U.S. and throughout the country, or throughout, that is the country, throughout the <laughs> world that have amazing products that are only known in maybe a 10-mile radius, maybe a 100-mile radius, maybe a little more than that. But what they're growing is essentially the Mercedes-Benz or Lamborghini of that product, but it's a 
you know, it's a beat up Honda Accord that's 20 years old in the marketplace. But actually what it is is amazing. And so connecting the dots between amazing ingredients and amazing food producers um, has been kind of what we've been about. But when you say the words eat y'all in Mexico or India or to the Vietnamese group or the Korean group we had um, last year that were here, um, it doesn't really mean anything. But if you say feast global, instantly people know that in every culture there's a feast. It's a, it's not just a meal, it's a celebration and it's abundance. And so our rebrand that happened, uh, I guess, last month to Feast Global, and we launched the new feastglobal.com website. And um, we were actually in Mexico for a project uh, working with a bunch of products from all over the South that we took to Mexico that are, again, kind of Mercedes Benzes that in their own backyard may only be valued as a Honda. Um, so, you know, when you're out there and you're, you're talking to people who have these products and whether it's, it's farmers or small manufacturers and producers, what are the challenges that they see when it comes to even embracing the idea of going global? Well, there's a lot of fear of, okay, I can sell this. um, I can hand this to somebody like the shrimpers in in my local community here. People buy it right off the dock, right? I'm sure that probably is very similar to you. Um, And they know what they're going to get. And it's typically, you know, whatever the, whatever the day price is, but they don't sometimes, and this is where you kind of are trying to find the global food matchmaker. Sometimes you find somebody that has a great product or they've had a bumper crop where there's just amazing thing that they have so much that they can't sell it all for what it's valued at. And so it ends up getting wasted or, you know, 90% of the world's, food never makes it into the global marketplace. It's just all locally transacted. So when you have a guy who in Greece had a bumper crop of olive oil this past year, which they're still harvesting and bottling right now, Greece had some of the best quality, you know, the weather, all these different things kind of factor into it. They have this amazing crop and they're like, oh, well, instead of just selling it to Spain and Italy where they blend it and sell it Spain or Italy olive oil, maybe we should sell it directly ourselves to some great chefs in America. So we've been talking to folks in Greece that want to take their amazing Lamborghini olive oil, if you will, and get it here. And there's a lot of concern like, well, how are we going to get paid and how much can we make? And is our, you have to figure out the label and the shipping and the, you know, the, the government has to approve it on both sides. And there's, there's a lot of steps involved in order for something to go from point A to point B globally. Um, but typically if you find the right product with the right buyer, it's, you know, it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing win for everybody. What are some of the products out there that you've come across and, and you've gone, oh my gosh, I, I didn't even know about this. How did I not know this could be so amazing? Or uh, 
I really found one that nobody else knows about, and I got this whole new top secret thing. So I was in Mexico for two weeks last month, and we met a guy who we invited to come to an event where we had our products from the U.S., and he ends up telling me that he's got a business where he is a chocolate manufacturer. And he is super clean label. Like there's no soy fillers. There's no junk. It is just chocolate. And I mean, then he does like, he'll put it on an orange peel or add habanero or, you know, he's got all these different iterations of it. And I can promise you, Amy, I've had some fancy chocolate in my life. I have never had chocolate that was as amazing as that. And he kind of we nibbled around the corners and then he's like oh you like that one we'll try this habanero oh try the orange peels dipped in my chocolate with sea salt like yes please and he just kept going he kept pulling out tubs of things and of course he has this beautiful retail packaging and he sells wholesale to a bunch of chefs down there but he would just go pull from his unpackaged stuff and be like here try this and Mariana, uh, my wife, who you know, and Kate, uh, my daughter, were with me. And the, we all agreed this is on a whole nother, another level. And it's and it's a clean label. So people who are trying to avoid soy, trying to avoid even dairy or whatever else, he's got the thing. And uh, so I immediately texted, even while I was there, I was texting um, chefs in your city and other places that I know make things with really great chocolate and uh, kind of started the ball rolling to see if there's a, if there's a fit, if his chocolate would work up here. So how does it feel, you know, to, to watch these farmers, these producers, their businesses blossom because of the new relationships that they're making? It's, it's a great feeling to see somebody valued for, what they've done. And I was, you know, in describing what we do, I've, I've used the analogy of, and I sit here at my office has guitars on the wall. And one of them was my grandfather's that if I put it in a yard sale, um, it would probably go for 75, hundred bucks. But if I put it on eBay and I took the world's attention on this probably 1968 Barkley arch top, um, it's got the F holes like a violin and it's a sunburst. I mean, it's a beautiful guitar and it sounds like a gravelly sweet note. But if I took that and put it on eBay instead of $75 or $100, I could probably get significantly more because I would bring the true value of what's hanging on my wall to the world and have it in the open marketplace. And when, when farms get the same feeling of, oh, wow, my stuff is really amazing. And I can sell it to some of the top buyers in the U.S. or the world. Um, it's it's a huge thing because you can literally change the dynamic of a, you can change the, the family tree, if you will. I think that's what Dave Ramsey, the financial guy, always talks about. It's like changing your, your financial family tree so that you actually put something in the inheritance instead of, <laughs> hey, there's a, here's the balance you owe to have, you know, you know, it's, it's like, it can make a huge difference. Well, and it's interesting you say that because uh, 
for my listeners out there, I got to go to a dairy farm with Andy and his team and a bunch of chefs. And it was a, it was a really interesting experience for me because I got, we talked to the farmer, we spent all day with the farmer and he told us that this was like the second or third time that he had restarted his farm because of bankruptcy failure issues. And he said, people look at me like I'm crazy, but somebody's got to raise these dairy cattle. And he's, I'll, I'll never forget. He said, but I, I didn't really want my kids in the business. I didn't want them to have to risk what I risked. And then the next sentence he said, So my kids are in the business and now they've developed this ice cream and now we're, we have an ice cream stand and we're selling ice cream and we're turning our product into something else. And I realized he was truly innovating with the help of the next generation, but there was a time in his life he didn't want to leave the family farm to his generation because he was afraid he wasn't going to necessarily have the market for the product that he to, so they could raise their families. Are you are you seeing that? Are you hearing more of that? And are you hearing that it's coming back to being a family business? Yeah, I think right now the average farmer in America the average age, maybe late fifties, early sixties. That you can fact check. You know, all the fact checkers out there can. It, you know, it may be, it may be forty nine, but it's nowhere in the thirties. I can promise you that. And it's it's. I'm pretty sure from most of just my own, uh, what is it called, anecdotal data. Many of the farmers I know are sixty plus, and that they've spent their whole life on it. And a lot of times farms sell even a really high quality special product. They take incredible care to produce and it goes in bulk into the commodity market. And it's just thrown out in a yard sale. Like, hey, whoever the first person is to buy this can do it. And so when you right now, you you see people who are trying to figure out how do I get the value of what I'm producing to be better and let's be honest if you, i don't want to turn this into like a political thing but a few major corporations run a major part of you know a trillion dollar a year uh food market and so the little guy getting bigger is not as easy for them as the big guys getting bigger and it takes away this thing called market share and so if you can help these little guys just get a little bit bigger. It changes everything for their family. And you see the opportunities. I know multiple farms where it's like, oh, I want to go back and farm with daddy, but we've got to be able to do something different. And so that's what I love seeing because when you see that second, and sometimes we see now third and fourth generations all working together and, you know, the five-year-old is sweeping up in the, in the little store on the farmstead or, you know, the the mom is is making cheese while the kids are, you know, sweeping and dad's out there working the cows and granddad is working on a tractor. And it's all like this true family thing. It, their products are amazing. 
and everybody's putting in 110% every day. And I guarantee you, nobody sleeps better at night than those folks. I love that. It kind of gives me chills whenever you think of, uh, you know, I don't know. It's like the olden days, right? The olden days are coming back whenever we can uh, truly have incredible food and our, our families or families can produce it and share it. You know, from when we look at the olden days of food and uh, food product and getting things out there into the world to modern times where, you know, like you said, you have eBay, we have the internet. Now we have organizations like Feast Global that are being the matchmakers. What kind of innovations are you seeing that these small producers are having to, to make to keep up with now these new demands that they're getting? I think a lot of what's happening is you for instance, in the in the olive world or in the, I guess, you know, it's kind of produce, but, you know, somebody growing olives, somebody growing pecans, somebody growing coffee, you can do certain things to manage expectations on what your yield is going to be. But it's nothing like a, a cow farmer who's raising beef cattle and he feeds that thing every, and it's not really as weather dependent or whatever. Um, whether they're pasturing them or whatever. But in those three, you know, those three examples of the pecan guy, it, it's really, they can fertilize and they can do a lot of stuff, but some years they have an amazing crop and some years they don't. And it's funny because the you'll hear like the whole crop in Georgia was a short crop this year, or man, we had a great crop. What happens when supply goes way up? The price goes down. And when you have a really small harvest, um, the price goes up. And so I've seen, for instance, in the pecan industry, people investing a bunch of money in cold storage where they can drive a forklift with pallets and pallets and pallets of pecans being refrigerated at 38 or whatever their magic number temperature is so that when they have a big crop year, they can actually sell it for longer at, and because these are, like, you know, again, this is going back to the Lamborghini. This is the Lamborghini or Mercedes of the kind. These are sweet, high oil content, amazing products. This is not little skinny, crumbly ones that are really dark that you get sometimes at the grocery store for $9 a pound. And the grocery store is making three fifty dollars on it. These are actually, you know, just awesome. I mean, this is like the, in New Orleans, it's like the U10 shrimp, right? I mean, these are like big big boys that are really great for certain things. And so they figured out, oh, if we, if we add refrigeration and we can sell a third of our crop at a, reg, a good price instead of just the commodity price, we can pay for that refrigeration very quickly uh, and have it for whenever we need it and do other cold storage if we want to. And so little things like that make a huge difference. In the, in the coffee world, a lot of coffee farmers essentially, and the numbers may have changed a little bit, but the guy who's farming the coffee and picking the beans gets like 12 to 20 cents a pound. Of course, it's still in a, in a hole that they take it to a, their local mill and they sell it to the mill. And the mill then takes the hole off 
and sells a green coffee bean to an exporter who then sells it to a broker who sells it to a coffee shop or whatever. And all of a sudden it's $20 a pound. Well, if you could help that farmer get found and take his 16 to 20 cents and turn it into 25 cents or 30 cents, because people find that he's got the Rolls Royce of the coffee bean, because there's a huge difference in quality and all, all sorts of different things. If you're a coffee lover like myself, you'll, you'll know like, oh, there's some coffees you're like, I'll drink it because it's caffeine. But what I'm really wanting is <laughs> this. And just moving the dial just the tiniest bit for that guy, the very first one in line, um, and helping him get his products to a bigger market or a better market can can be a massive, massive shift for their whole family. Listening to you talk about that process of, you know, when the coffee is grown to when the coffee is brewed in our pots and to hear all the people, all the processes, all the transportation, all the work that goes in to turn it into a product that we truly enjoy and cherish. You know, what are consumers having to face now, knowing that that process is a little bit more expensive than it once was? Well, we have seen, and this is one of the things we tell um, buyers when we're talking to them um, right now is that futures. So like if you're buying cattle on a, on a large scale, there's what's called the cattle futures market. You can go and look it up and see what August live cattle futures is and what September live cattle futures are. You know, it'll, it'll tell you a number per pound and the Cattle, the cattleman I talked to earlier this year said, by this fall, you could be looking at $8 ground beef in the store. That's like bottom, you know, just regular. This is not grass fed. This is not one that this tiny little farm does. And they have like, they kill two cows a week and, and, and bring them to the farmer's market. And you trust what they're like. This is commodity pricing can get way up there because of the futures. And so you were like, well, why is that? Well, if you think about how much we've been paying for gas and fertilizer costs go up and all these different compounding factors, the guy who is growing the strawberries this year had to pay more for the plastic that they bought by sometimes 200% more for one part of their farm is just the plastic they put down to keep the weeds out of their, their plants. Um, and so that thing, that thing that cost him $30 a roll is, you know, maybe 60 or 80 or 90 because petroleum is part of that. And, oil, you know, oil prices, gas prices, and then the diesel for his truck to drive to town and the tractor costs and all of these little inputs that are just like one little, one little basically row in your Excel spreadsheet of what, what it's costing you for the farms up that went up a little bit, that went up a little bit, that went up a lot. And so it takes a while for that to trickle all the way through the system to the consumer. But for a consumer, man, you should uh, be expecting to pay more this this year. I mean, we look at it as inflation. It is inflationary. I'm not an economist, but I mean, we all know <laughs> there's inflation and there's shrinkflation, which is another thing that you'll be looking at because 
the loaf of bread that had 18 slices that was four and a half inches wide is going to be 13 slices and four inches wide, and you're going to pay more for it, and it'll be smaller. Um, and look, we're in the South, Amy. We could probably cut our portion sizes down, and it probably wouldn't hurt any of us. You know, like, <laughs> I, I get that. Um, but I want to be the one that decides my portion size, not, oh, like I, we laugh all the time. There's granola bars, and you used to have like 12 in a box when I was a kid, and now the box costs three times that much, and there's six, and they're tiny. I'm like, how did this happen? But it's, you know, it's a combination of all these tiny inputs of, oh, well, the, the guy that was growing the oats costs a little more and the packaging costs a little bit more and the, the diesel costs a little bit more and the cardboard costs a little bit more. And, you know, everything costs a little bit more. And by the time it gets to you, it's, it's a lot more. And so as people just kind of prepare for that and chefs are, you already kind of see this chefs are trying to figure out ways to make a dish that somebody can afford that they can also not lose money or still continue to make money serving something that you feel like you're full. So um, at, you've seen this, I'm sure in New Orleans, like, I, I mean, I spent a couple of days in New Orleans recently and it's like, I feel like portion sizes are, are probably getting more realistic for what it should be, but you know, I don't <laughs> like it. But, <laughs> yeah. I don't like it, but you know, the, when the oyster platter of a dozen oysters comes with seven, you're kind of like, okay, guys. <laughs> well, so, you know, to take it back to the chefs and the food and feast global, you know, if you were to throw that global feast with things that you've found along the way in this journey and dishes you've eaten that chefs have prepared, what's going on that feast table? Mm. Well, I can tell you, it depends on if, if I'm cooking, one of the things I'm going to cook is one of my new favorite foods. It's called Andean food. Um, we, we both went to India and had a group of Indian chefs come to the U.S. last year. And uh, when I was in India, everyone was like, oh, this is, this is the best um, doll. This is the original doll. And five different people served me doll over the course of the 10 days we were there, at least. And they all said, no, this is the, it's like, where's the best it's place a gumbo. to a boy, you know, or a gumbo. If you go to New Orleans and you ask like 20 people, where's the best place to get a shrimp po' boy, you're going to get 19 different answers. And two of them are going to be like a married couple that's like our house. <laughs> they're like, they're, you know, we only, we don't eat it out. We make it here because this is how it should be. But that, that flavor of, you know, the Indian spices and all those things, I just really loved. And, and I bought a bunch of spices when I was there. When they came here, we cooked together again and, and, um, cooked two big meals. We actually cooked a bunch of steaks together, which uh, I did not have when I was in India. Um, and they kind of coached me up on a lot of different ways to use the spices that they brought me. And uh, that would definitely be on there. And then, I mean, I love some, some red meat. I love some oysters and shrimp. So, you know, I don't even need bread service. I don't, you know, you skip the carbs if you need to, like, just give me all the proteins. So that's, that's what I'm really like. Give me, give me some steak, give me some, some, uh, 
I mean, I'll, I'll eat the carbs with like the Indian spices on them, like a, a curry or something, but with a little rice in there. And that, and that's so funny because if I, if you ask me my, uh, my feast global table, I, I joke all the time that my, my tombstone's going to say died from bread and gravy because that's what I could totally live on is amazing international breads, uh, you know, yeasted breads, flat breads, any kind, any kind of, honestly, any kind of carb you give me, but particularly breads. And then I, gravy to me is any liquid on a plate I can dip bread in. Right. <laughs> so, so, so like a hummus would be a hummus would be gravy for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, uh, chocolate sauce could be gravy in some, in some situations. Right. So, but to know that there are so many, you know, a really good olive oil, a really good, uh, you know, spiced curry broth, a really good gumbo, the ability to get, you know, to make gravy is, or sauce or whatever you want to call it, that liquid, that stew, it takes so many products to create that flavor that I feel like it's, it makes all the products shine and all the flavors shine. It does. And, uh, the, all of that you're talking about makes me think of this. Uh, when I was in New Orleans recently, we ate it sabi and we had the blue crab hummus and it was like hummus, but it was like in the middle was the blue crab in some sort of just delicious magic sauce. And there's a little spice and there's lots of olive oil and the big puffy pitas. And I can eat that every day. I can promise you that. <laughs> Well, I love this. I could talk to you about food all day long, but we're we're out of time. I, uh, if you'll just tell our listeners real quick your website so that they can find you and find out a little bit more about you. Yeah, go to uh, feastglobal.com and you can find us there. And of course, we can, we're at Feast Global on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. I don't think we have a MySpace anymore, but uh, everything else, I think we're, we're on it. So uh, check us out. Give us a follow. Send us an email. Hello at feastglobal.com. Tell us you heard this. Tell us what you liked about what we were talking about with Amy, how we're wrong, what you're farming, what you want to buy. We just want to hear from you. Awesome. Well, for my listeners out there, my guest today was Andy Chapman with Feast Global. Had a blast talking about food with him. Hopefully he'll uh, drag me along on an international tasting adventure one day. I'm putting it out there in the universe just in case. But you've been listening to Dinner Party with Chef Amy Sins on WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. Until next time, ciao.